You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. As Christians, we believe the Bible is God's word to his people. That means when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak. Today's Bible reading is from Mark chapter 15, verse 1 to 47. Please have your Bibles open or follow along on the screen. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again, Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer, and so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them, as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was the king of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking 
him among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him taunted him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sakbatani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joses and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. After he brought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in the tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the entrance to the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were watching where he was laid. Well, good morning, my brothers and sisters in Christ. If you haven't met, my name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors here at Cross and Crown. And if you're new or just visiting, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here, especially on this day, Good Friday. Now today, it's a weighty privilege to talk to you about the crucifixion of Jesus. We've been following the story of Jesus' betrayal, his arrest and trial, and now we're at his crucifixion. This is the summit of our faith. So let's reflect on what happened soberly. On May 6th, about a month from now, the coronation of King Charles III will take place. Now, a coronation is a ceremony where the king is officially crowned. It formalizes the king's role as head of the kingdom. Now, I want you to imagine what a coronation is like for a moment. There are powerful people that gather to support the king, right? Religious, political, and military leaders gather together to pay homage to the king. Then there's a procession where the king walks up to the place where he will be crowned. Then a celebration. Trumpets and fanfare with crowds shouting, God save the king. God save the king. 
Now, I want you to keep that image of a coronation in your head and imagine another scene. Imagine that on the same day of King Charles' coronation, a man convicted of murder is scheduled to be executed for his crime. What would that scene look like? Well, instead of powerful people supporting him, you have people in power deciding his fate. Instead of a crown, he wears a bag over his head. And instead of walking towards a throne, he walks towards a hangman's noose. Instead of becoming the center of the kingdom's glory, he is the center of the kingdom's condemnation. Now here's the audacious claim Mark is illustrating in chapter 15. Those two scenes are happening at the same time in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now the execution part is quite obvious for us to see, right, when we read chapter 15. Jesus is charged, he's crucified, he dies, and he's buried. He is executed. But if we look closer, we can actually also see traces of his coronation too. Verses 1 to 20, we see the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. We see political leader like Pilate. And we see the military all declare that he is the king of the Jews, albeit sarcastically. Verses 17 to 32, we see him dressed in a purple robe, the symbol of royalty, crowned with thorns and lifted high with the crowds shouting, albeit mockingly. And in verse 38, we see the declaration of the centurion that truly this is the Son of God. The declaration that Jesus is indeed the King. Now, in case you think I'm reading too much into this chapter, throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus predicted three times what it meant for him to be king. In Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10, he repeatedly says, the Son of Man will be killed. So what Mark has been trying to get at throughout this whole gospel is that the crown comes with a cross. In fact, we could say that the crown actually is the cross. Now, why is this important for us to get? Well, on, level, on one level, it's important for us to see that Jesus' claim to be king is not negated by the fact that he was crucified. He was not crucified because he was weak or because he was a victim. In fact, Jesus' claim to be king is affirmed by his crucifixion. You see, at a coronation, the full glory and splendor of a kingdom is displayed, right? It's paraded, it's flaunted for every nation to see how great this kingdom is. And you'll see that at King Charles' coronation. You'll see how lavish it is. We've, been to one of, we've seen the royal weddings before. It's like that. So there's something about the crucifixion of Jesus that fully displays the glory and splendor of the kingdom of God. And we'll get to that later. But on another level, it's important for us to understand this because this is important for how we understand discipleship. You see, here's where I think we're at when it comes to discipleship. We want a crown without a cross. 
See, we're all in when we hear about the complete forgiveness of sins, inheriting the kingdom of God, being co-heirs with Christ, being saved by grace through faith alone. And those are wonderful truths, and they are to be cherished and embraced, everything that Christ has done and given us. But here's where I think we struggle. We struggle with Jesus' words earlier in Mark. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We don't want to take up our cross, do we? Why? Because a cross means suffering, right? A cross means rejection. It means humiliation. And nobody wants that. We want security. We want freedom. And the cross is the opposite of all of that, right? That's why we want a crown without a cross. Those two just don't go together. So, instead of joining Christ's kingdom, we try to build our own. One without a cross. We try to focus on climbing up the corporate ladder or build a big business or get into that specialty as a doctor or to leave a lasting legacy, all in the hopes that the kingdom we build will make us finally feel safe and free. But here is Mark's big pitch. The security, the safety, and the freedom that you seek isn't actually found in avoiding the cross. It's found through the cross. It's there that you'll find the king and the kingdom that you're looking for. To understand how this is so, my sermon today will have three points. Why was the king crucified? What the crucifixion accomplished? And how we should respond? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you, Lord for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that as king, he wore the cross, the cross that we did not want, the cross that we, we could not bear. And Lord, help us see today how, how in the crucifixion of Christ, we have a king that makes us completely secure and free in your love, in your presence forever. And because of the freedom and security we have, let us take up our cross for your glory and for your son's sake. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Verses 1 to 2. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. Well, here we have the legal reason as to why Jesus was crucified. The religious leaders told Pilate that Jesus claimed to be king. Now, you get crucified for claiming to be king when you're under Roman rule because the only king in Rome is Caesar. So by claiming that you're king instead of Caesar, you're saying you want to rebel against him. And the penalty for that is death. But as Christians, don't we say that Jesus truly is king? Isn't he God's king? Why then, if he's God's king, would he let himself be put to death for something that was true? Doesn't this just confirm that he's weak and powerless to let this injustice stand? 
Well, Mark seems to suggest that Jesus' crucifixion was actually indeed for a genuine charge of treason. Just not his treason. Let's read on. Verse 6 to 15. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner of whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began, began to ask Pilate to do for them as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he would release Barabbas to them instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him. Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. And after having Jesus flogged, he handed him over to be crucified. So here we see two people before Pilate. One was Barabbas, who was convicted of murder and rebellion against Rome. And the other was Jesus, who, yes, claims to be king, but in Pilate's own words, has done nothing wrong. In other words, he's innocent. So here's what happens with Pilate's custom. He releases one of the Jewish prisoners for them. Now, Pilate wants to release Jesus because he's innocent, and he realizes that the religious leaders are just jealous of him. But the religious leaders stir up the crowd, Pilate gets overwhelmed, and he ends up releasing a murderer and crucifying the innocent Jesus. Now here we can already see how corrupt worldly kingdoms are, right? Firstly, we have the religious leaders who, out of envy, would have a man killed. Religious leaders. I mean, aren't these guys giving their best shot at righteousness? Aren't these guys supposed to be the moral of us, the most moral of us? Yet they're hypocrites. They talk about loving God and being righteous. But once someone threatens their religious power, they say, let's kill him. And second, we have political leaders like Pilate, who didn't fare any better. He knew Jesus was innocent. He said so himself. Yet what does he do? He lets an innocent man die. Why? He succumbs to the fear of the crowd. He's afraid of what a riot may do to him and his own power. Caesar may step in and take Pilate's position from him because he's incompetent. See, whether it be Pilate or the religious leaders, both were obsessed with holding their power. So obsessed that they would let an innocent man die to keep it. Now, we can look back at this and just be appalled by them. But we should remember which kingdom they represent. Notice, this is, the king, this is how the kingdoms of the world operate, right? This is actually the kingdom that you're actually seeking, I think. Isn't it? None of them are suffering, are they? None of them are carrying a cross. That's what you want, right? A crown without a cross? That's the kingdom of Rome. Glorious and powerful Rome. Who wouldn't want to be in Rome, right? The pinnacle of human civilization. Does it give the freedom and security that you think? 
It doesn't, doesn't it? Instead, it's full of oppression and injustice. Why? Because here's the reality. Due to our sin, if you want a crown without a cross, you will end up crucifying others. Just like they did. Aren't we tempted to act the same way they did? If we get envious of a colleague who might get promoted ahead of us, we're tempted to speak ill of them. Or if a crowd wants to condemn a person for an unpopular opinion, we kind of join the crowd and condemn them as well, don't we? Lest they turn and crucify us. A crown without a cross leads us to hurt others in order to protect ourselves. That's where our avoiding of suffering does. But Jesus shows us another way, another kingdom, another king. See, God actually uses this scene to illustrate what Jesus is really doing on the cross. Focus on Barabbas' crime in verse 7. Yes, there's murder, but more importantly, rebellion. Barabbas rebelled against the king. Jesus had a similar charge for claiming to be king, but the difference between them is Jesus actually was king. Now, in a real sense, we're as guilty as Barabbas when it comes to rebellion. Only not in rebellion of Rome, but in rebellion to God and his kingdom. We've rebelled against God, right? We claim to be kings and queens who are in charge of our own lives, right? He has no right or rule over us. We've rebelled against his commandments and his word and his will. Instead, we claim to be king and queen, and we claim to be the ones who can decide our fate. We've rebelled against God. We claim to be king in his place and to do what he wants, what we want regardless of what he says. Friends, that's treason. And the penalty for that is death. Now, how does God's king respond to treason? We see how Caesar responds to treason. It's by crucifying others. But here, instead of making us pay the penalty... Jesus substitutes himself in our place, as he did for Barabbas. Barabbas committed treason, rebelled against Rome, and murdered someone. But it's Jesus who took his place. In the same sense, we've committed treason, rebelled against God, but it's Jesus who takes our place. In every other kingdom, it is the people who die for their king. But here in Christ, we have a king who loves his people so much that he dies for his people. The question then is, how? How did Jesus take our place on the cross? What did his crucifixion accomplish? The text gives us three answers. He was wounded so we may be healed. He was rejected so we may be accepted. And he died so we may live. Let's continue in verses 16 to 20. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, 
twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him, getting down on their knees. They were paying him homage. And after they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put his clothes on him. Now here we have clear elements of Jesus' coronation, right? Going into the palace, dressing in a royal robe, bestowal of the crown of thorns, and the military saluting, Hail, King of the Jews. But we need to take a moment to soberly imagine the scene that's taking place. See, all of this takes place after Jesus was flogged in verse 15. And this is what would have happened during Jesus' flogging, according to Truman Davis. A heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. So imagine Jesus, with his flesh fully exposed, entering into the palace. And what do the Roman soldiers do to him? They throw a purple robe across his shredded back. They fasten a crown of thorns and press it into Jesus' scalp, hammering it into his head with a stick until his head bleeds from the thorns. Then they beat him senselessly and spit on him. After that, they rip the purple robe from Jesus' exposed back. The commentator says the fabric probably stuck to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds. They ripped it off him like a bandage, carelessly removed. And they put his own clothes back on him. Why? Why all this senseless violence? What does this all accomplish? Why would Jesus go through with this? What is it for? Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, But he was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. In other words, friends, those wounds he was inflicted with throughout his flogging and with the soldiers, they weren't meant for him. They were meant for you. Friends, because of our sins, we've all wounded someone. We've all wounded people. We've all sinned against God and others multiple times in our lives. And because God is a God of justice, those wounds that you've inflicted on the day of judgment should be repaid to you. But Jesus takes our place. 
And because he took our place, the wounds that were meant for us goes to him. That's why he went to the cross. But that's not all that took place on the cross. He wasn't only punished in our place, he was rejected in our place. Let's check out verse 33 to 39. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lamas bachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled the sponge in with sour wine, filled it, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Friends, look at Jesus' last words. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Isn't that a strange thing to say for God's king? Isn't that the opposite of what we'd expect God's king to say? Abandoned by God? Have you ever been abandoned? I wonder if you've felt the pain of abandonment before. By your friends who left you to take the blame for something you decided to do together. By your spouse who may have left you because... Things just got too hard. By your family, when you were going through something in your life that brought them shame. How did that feel? Sometimes it's a pain that's worse than physical suffering, isn't it? Joan of Arc, the patron saint of France, who defended French from the siege of Orléans, was tried for heresy and eventually burnt at the stake. And when she was abandoned by all those who used to stand beside her, she said this, It is better to be alone with God. His friendship will not fail me, nor his counsel, nor his love. In his strength, I will dare and dare and dare until I die. You see, for Joan of Arc, who was abandoned by everyone, her one consolation, her single consolation as she went through this, was that God was with her. And do you know Jesus didn't even have that consolation? Everyone abandoned Jesus, all of his disciples. Jesus walked to the cross alone, condemned by everyone. But that abandonment wasn't enough, apparently. Jesus here is being abandoned and rejected by God himself in his moment of deepest struggle and suffering. Why? Why is he being rejected by God? Pilate said he has done nothing wrong. He's innocent. Why is God rejecting him now? Why? It's because, friends, by rejecting Christ, God can accept you. 
Friends, our sin does not only create this moral debt of justice that needs to be repaid. Our sin creates alienation. Alienation from each other. When we sin against each other, we push each other away. We rupture our relationship with each other. But more importantly, it creates alienation from God. God is a holy God, and our sin creates a barrier between us and God. So as a holy and righteous God, he must forsake sin, which unfortunately means he must forsake us because of our sins. And isn't that deep down what we fear? To be forsaken, to be rejected, to be rejected and forsaken by the people we love, to be rejected and forsaken by God. Yet God's rejection of us would be justified, wouldn't it? For we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. His holiness demands our rejection. So we can't be accepted by God. We can't. Unless someone takes our place. But who would want to do that? Who would want to trade places with a sinner condemned by God. There is one king who would. Jesus took our place to be rejected and forsaken by God so that we may be fully accepted. He said, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me so that you will never ever have to say that in this life or the next? Now, how do we know that we're fully accepted by God through Jesus? Well, verse 38, the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. Back in the Old Testament, that curtain represented the barrier to the throne room of God. That curtain was there to show us that there is a barrier between us and God because of our sins. However, on the cross, Jesus took our place to be fully rejected by God because of our sins. And since all of our sins have been paid for on the cross, that curtain is no longer required. And we can have free access to God. We have been fully reconciled to God in Christ. And through this, we may live. Now my third point, he died so we may live, is really just the culmination of the first two. Let's get to the root of why we don't want to carry our cross. We don't want a cross because we don't want to die. We're afraid of death, right? We're afraid because death is the culmination of suffering, right? And we're afraid because death is eternal loneliness, to be cut off from all of our loved ones and to go alone into the dark abyss. You are afraid of dying, so you are afraid to take up that cross. But Christ took our place in our death as well. He died in our place so we may live. See, on that cross, we know now that what awaits us on death is not suffering, but bliss, eternal life in the presence of God, where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. 
And because of the crucifixion of Christ, we know that what awaits us after death is not a lonely, dark abyss, but the warm embrace of a loving God. And friends, this is why Christ and the kingdom of God offers us a freedom and security that the world cannot offer. Fundamentally, freedom and security cannot be found in chasing money or good health or physical safety because none of these things can save us from the one thing that will happen to us all. Death. And this is why the crucifixion of Jesus is his crown. It's the ultimate display of the kingdom of God's glory and power, able to save from death all who would repent and turn to our king. Now in light of this, how should we respond? There are two responses. To confess the crown and to take up the cross. First, we're to confess the crown. Have a look at verse 39. When the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This was the declaration of his kingship. Back then, the title son of God is what you would call emperors and kings. And with this, Mark is showing that Jesus is the true king. So this is the culmination of Jesus' coronation on the cross. The declaration from a Roman centurion that Jesus is truly the king. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to really consider who it is that's confessing Christ. A Roman centurion. Probably, probably one of those who actually beat Jesus' head and stripped off his robe. And if you think you're far too gone to be saved by Jesus, look at the centurion. He is the one that literally beat, spit, and crucified Jesus with his own hands. Yet he turned and confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. And what's strange is he's of the Roman Empire. His life is literally a crown without a cross. Yet what he sees on the cross is a king more glorious and powerful than Caesar. So if you're not a Christian and you're here today, I hope you see what the centurion saw. And I hope you can turn to him no matter what you've said and done in your life. Our king is a good and gracious king. He is a king that dies for his people, yet he is a king that also dies for his enemies. So much so, that he would take your place of condemnation and rejection so that you may have the full righteousness and acceptance of God. But not only should we confess the crown, we must also take up our cross. Let's read verse 42 to 47. When it was already evening, because it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God, came and boldly went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he had already died. When he found out from the centurion, he gave the corpse to Joseph. And after he brought some linen cloth, Joseph took him down and wrapped him in the linen. Then he laid him in a tomb, cut out of the rock, and rolled the stone against the entrance to the tomb. 
Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching where he he was laid. Now, I don't think we give Joseph of Arimathea enough credit for how much courage it took for him to stand up for Jesus at this point in time. Firstly, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the group of religious leaders that wanted to kill Jesus. Exposing himself to be a disciple of Jesus would jeopardize his very secure position in life. It's like risking your position as a teacher, as a doctor, or a lawyer by confessing Christ and following his ways that are controversial to the world. And secondly, he's asking Pilate for the body. Jesus' crime was confessing to be king, rebellion against Rome. So if the Jews, with the Jews, he's risking his career. With Rome, he's risking his life. If Pilate really took Jesus' claim seriously, he could see Joseph as a fellow rebel and crucify him as well. See, Joseph really took up his cross and risked his career and life to honor Jesus in his death. Now the question is, where do we get the resources to live like Joseph? There's this interesting comment in verse 43. He's a prominent member of the Sanhedrin who was himself looking forward to the kingdom of God. See, what was motivating him was his desire for the kingdom of God. Joseph knew Jesus was king even in his death. And looking at Christ, he saw the kingdom of God and what it's like. And then he looked at the kingdoms before him. The kingdoms of this world, represented by Rome, with their pursuit of glory and power, leading to injustice and oppression. The kingdom of religion, represented by the Sanhedrin, with their pursuit of glory and power, leading to hypocrisy and self-righteousness. He looked at those two kingdoms, and he looked at Jesus and the kingdom of God. And he decided to join the latter even if it cost him his career and life, which it costed his own king, he would take up his cross and follow Jesus to join him in the kingdom of God. Why? Because he saw the true glory and power of God's kingdom. Not one of gold and glitz, but one of love for enemies, sacrificial service, and humble submission. And through that, he saw the true freedom and security this kingdom is offering. Freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from death, freedom to love God and love one another. The choice is before us today as well. Which will you join? The kingdoms of this world? or the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the cross, the cross of Christ, which he endured, Lord. All the wounds, all the suffering, all the rejection and abandonment, all in our place for our sake, that we may be free and secure in his love. Father, please help us, Lord. Cherish this truth and take up our cross, so that others may know this good and glorious kingdom and may follow your Son, Jesus Christ, into it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.